Schneider. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Shabir Show. I'm really excited to have our next couple of guests, both of which are co-founders of BuildStock, basically focused on connecting tech with the construction world, Wilson Kriegel and Catherine Deal. Thanks so much for being part of The Shabir Show. Thanks for having us. It's great to be on. We'd love to hear all of you guys' backgrounds. Catherine, would you like to introduce yourself first? Sure. I am a registered architect. I live here in New York. I grew up low income out in New Jersey. Started working at 13, always hustled very hard, worked three jobs to get through school, went to school in Ohio for architecture, moved to New York after for the scale of the projects here. One of the first jobs I worked at after school was uh, code zoning consulting, where I worked with a bunch of high-rise developers doing code zoning here in New York, like Tishman, Turner, Skanska. And the majority of my career has been with a company called Manhattan Building Company, high-rise, design-build, fast-track developers. Initially hired in-house as their technical architect. I ran all their mechanical, electrical, plumbing, structure, fire protection for all their projects, anything from the engineers in offices to the job sites with all the subcontractors, ran over a billion dollars worth of construction projects with them, and worked in construction for about 10 years before I got into an incubator and started building a tech company with Wilson. Exciting. Thanks for sharing your story. And uh, Wilson, how about yourself when you introduce yourself? Yeah, Wilson Kriegel. I'm a father of two. I was born and raised in Paris, France. I actually grew up on a farm with no electricity and hot water the first couple of years. I uh, grew up in the projects mostly and then immigrated to America at 16. I had failed out of school by 14. And I started in labor, actually in construction. I was a welder and I was a laborer on construction sites for large industrial projects. Made my way through college near Boston and then went on to aspire to be on Wall Street. I didn't make the investment bank criteria. So I ended up in commercial banking and project finance. I uh, was financing power plants, stadiums, oil rigs, oil pipeline and commercial project finance at Sumitomo Mitsui Bank. And after the crisis in 98, I joined Enron Offcycle, which was one of the companies that we had uh, credit lines uh, against in their pipelines and energy uh, industry business. I spent several years there, and uh, that's actually where I started my entrepreneurship experiences. Post that, came back to New York, down from Houston, and post the collapse 2002 and September 11, I started in gaming. The following 10 years, I helped build as a co-founder and a founder and a hired executive four startups, three of them sold, actually four of them sold in the gaming industry and moved to San Francisco to do that and build more software-related companies. Ultimately, seven of them were venture-backed companies and five of them were successful. I retired in 2019 and was a coach. I've been in extreme athletes for the past, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 years now and uh, was raising my kids. And Catherine and I met while she was in her incubator and she pitched me the idea of build stock and uh, in its infancy, and you know we ended up choosing to build the company together in uh, early 2022. Wow! Thanks for sharing. I, I got to say this is pretty uh, incredible to hear both your humble beginnings and where you have come. I mean, it's interesting. I always believe in like unique ways how people connect and meet each other in the process. So before I get into that, I, I am curious: How did uh, Catherine you get into like? The, your passion about architecture. Did you do that when you wanted to go to college? 
And like, did you, you said from like college, you got into like basic construction. Did you still continue or do anything in that space for architecture or not? Yeah. Thanks for asking the question. I always struggled with, you know, English classes and what really made sense to me was always math. And my first job at 13 was an auto body shop. Always you're putting things together, whether it was Legos. And I started moving, uh, navigating towards the wood shops and metal shops and robotics and always was tinkering. So when I was looking at trying to get out of that past life of, you know, drug abuse and alcohol abuse and all those things and really wanted to do something with my life, I was like, well, I want to be an architect. I want to be able to put things together and math and physics and all those things really made sense to me. I didn't go really towards other kind of more feminine, I would say, trades or careers. And then how about yourself, Wilson? I mean, you have an interesting story you know, coming from another continent to the U.S., and basically, you also kind of have a hybrid of both being hands-on with construction, commercial working, and to then getting yourself into finance and then entrepreneurship. How did you kind of like get your evolution through all this into like where you're at today? Like, I'm, I'm always fascinated about this type of stuff. Yeah, you know, I think that Catherine and I both had to develop a disposition for survival in our younger age. You know, I, I grew up in the projects as actually as a white person, but a minority in the environment I was in. My mother was lower income. I grew up with learning disability. Catherine did as well. I grew up in a violent household and fairly unpleasant environment. Uh, I know Catherine also had her difficult experiences. I think, you know, for the better or for the worse, you know, people are molded at a young age to overcome or to strive or to be overwhelmed or to be undermined. And in one way, shape or another, we form ourselves with these experiences that we don't really sign up for. And we, we hack at things along the way of trying to, to be, uh, trying to become, trying to, you know, find ourselves. So I, I actually, you know, I had significant learning disabilities. I also had significant uh, mental health disorders. So by the time I was 14, I was actually out of the public system already for failing out of all my classes. My father had immigrated to America in 82 with a dollar in his pocket, no education, no English. And my mother was more in the artistic, uh, creative landscape and environments. I actually wanted to be a cartoonist as a child for most of my youth, but fundamentally a little bit like Catherine, like, you know, there was just an inner drive that kind of built itself or you just succumb to the environment and through the challenges, we develop certain types of skills, certain types of learning abilities, certain kinds of resilience. And when I came to America, my father was very clear. He's like, it didn't matter what his dynamics were. He became a very successful entrepreneur himself. So I did have a perception reality, a false perception reality that entrepreneurship was something that allowed somebody to get wealthy. I had no skills, no education. I had learning disabilities. I had mental health disorders. And so for me, sports in college was a defining moment in my life in understanding practice, training, discipline, rewiring a mental mindset, participating at, at a, a high level. I was a D1 athlete in the end. What did and you find uh, uh, track, track and field? Got it. Okay. And so in the end, I think, you know, again, like as we venture through life and challenges come about and opportunities come about, um, there's this slightly different breeds of people who maximize opportunities, who grab onto opportunities, who overcome difficult circumstances. And with those come specific skill sets, specific traits, specific differentiations that you have and you apply. And I think Catherine was immensely talented in her own way of making that her reality from where she was coming from. I did it within my own realm. 
my father had no interest in helping me in my career. I became homeless at 27 after September 11. Uh, wow. My father was very wealthy at that point in time. And he pat me in the back and he's like, hey, well, there's no easy money and you can go back out and work at McDonald's. At that point in time, I had lost millions of dollars through the collapse of the market at Enron. And so I think that I think that that's where the character gets built. It's just a dynamic of how do you start figuring out a way to not succumb to the environment, to the circumstances, to the difficulty. How do you develop skill sets and, and mindset? How do you develop ways of having more value and solving problems that other people are not? Like, how are you going to come about overcoming impossible circumstances? And I think that that's one of the things that I admired and respected tremendously when I met Catherine. It wasn't that she was like transparent about that. Catherine's a very private person, but it was just there was just this energy, this charisma, this grit. Uh, this resilience. She harassed me for six months around a project, you know, oh, come and come to the developer, come to her warehouse, meet the customer, listen to what I'm trying to do. And we actually met at a conference after a panel and she got in line and asked a bunch of people, you know, she asked me some question and asked if I would support her and I had no interest. I was like, keep your money, go get a prototype. That's how the business works. But ultimately there was just that dynamic of a mindset and of an intent and of the energy behind that, which, you know, like survival entrepreneurship, you know, building a career like she did in a very man-driven environment and very difficult circumstances, a construction site, and very difficult skill of becoming a, a licensed architect, which takes a very long time. It's very expensive. And it's very difficult. You recognize that because you've had to do it. If you're at that level, you know, that at, at that point when I was retiring at over three and a half billion dollars of companies, if you count the IPO of New Power Co. at Enron, that's seven billion dollars almost in companies. You know, I, I went through the trades. So, Seeing somebody that young, you know, Catherine's much younger than I am coming into my 50s. She's just over 30. Like to have that resilience, that grit, that energy, that charisma, you know, there was just something there. And that's what kind of brought us together. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, you mentioned grit. I'm a big fan of Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, and basically the resilience there. I mean, it's interesting. You were saying that, oh, at that moment in time, the Enron you know, collapse, you know, you were at that stage where you had to decide. I feel like you almost had an earlier moment in multiple times in your young life that you had very similar parallels that you just decided to keep going. And it seems like, Catherine, you also had the same thing as well. I am fascinated, actually, you, as you mentioned, Wilson, that, you know, Catherine went into this space, you know, what are some of the stuff that you saw that you had to have grit through, you know, through the process of like building in construction and architecture, especially being it's what's incredible is you both were <laughs> in the heart of all commerce in New York City too. So I'm really interested to hear about that type of side. So being a female on a construction site, you have to earn the respect that some old white males are given. But once you earn that respect, and it could take a few years, it could take a few months, you get it for life these people become your family. So I dealt with not only the challenges of managing projects. When I mentioned that a Manhattan building company does high rise, fast track design built, to give you a scale of that, we would put up a tower a year, say a 30 story building, a year, every other year. So the scale of that alone is very challenging. Whether you're coordinating any gas coming into the building, an electric service, the transformers, stepping down the transformers to be able to use the electric into the apartments, any kind of offsets. If you don't have apartments that stack on top of each other, doing the layouts, coordinating the finishes, 
coordinating the teams, coordinating different personalities. Architecture is this art that brings together all these different tradesmen onto a job site and be able to build this like beautiful building that creates communities for thousands of people. And that's why I've always loved high-rise construction. But as you mentioned, there are many issues within the industry, whether it's the lack of transparency, the issues around getting materials, project delays, drawing down on your revolving line of credit from the banks, getting construction loans, bridge financing, a multitude of different things. And we were like, we were all in-house. So Manhattan Building Company is very unique in the structure where they have construction in-house, they have their architects in-house, they have some engineering in-house, they have the lawyers, they have accounting. And it's really this art that we put together, but we would find land, we would rezone it, we would go through the whole process, we would reprogram it, we would give them all the pricing, we would, and then we would build it from driving 100 feet piles underground to topping off the construction of the project. What I always said was like, there's, you can celebrate those moments. As you can see that you're done with a project and it's so beautiful. And I think that was one of actually the challenges when I moved into the tech side of things is when you're finished with a project, you're finished with a project. You can see it. It's tangible. But when you're building software, that was something that I really struggled with. Being, I can't touch it. I can't feel it. I don't feel it's ever complete. Yeah. So I guess a couple of things uh, to follow up on this. The first is, you know, how many people were at the Manhattan building company? And then two, when did you have that moment, Catherine, where you're like, okay, I think you know, I've tried this internally. It's time for me to move on and actually do this as like basically as a startup idea. Was it, and then when did you get into that? Was that the same time you got into that incubator? Yeah. So to answer your question, there was probably 30 to 50 people that were office staff and engineers and then the construction side had a good amount of other people, whether it was laborers or our self-performers. So there was a lot of different people that you had to work with all the time. And then on our job sites, we would have hundreds of people from the guy that's working the crane to all the different contractors. And even during COVID, you would have one carpenter that would get COVID and his team of 20 would have to be out because they work in such close proximity. I mean, we could have a whole podcast about construction during COVID. (laughs) And then, yeah, going into your question about building this tech company. And so I built a bunch of buildings with Manhattan Building Company. And I came in during a building called Cast Iron Lofts. And then shortly after, the woman that was above me, who was basically next to principal, she went on maternity leave. So I ended up running the next project, which was two towers and another like mid-rise building in between. And then I also ran the, the next buildings after that as well. But you learn so much by just getting thrown into the deep end. And I think one thing that I always felt a pull on, I do a lot of stuff in the community. I do a lot of stuff for American Institute of Architects. I ran their Emerging New York Architect chapter for many years until January. I rolled off as their co-chair. But we started mentorship programs. We do a lot of stuff for the community. And I think coming from a background that me and Wilson came from, I really realized that I was building housing for rich people. I couldn't even afford to live in these apartments. 
So I struggled with that back and forth where I always felt like I wanted to give back to the community and I wasn't really doing that. And I could continue to create efficiencies within this company, but really I wanted to create efficiencies for all New Yorkers to be able to have access to affordable materials. And that's when I really had that inflection point of, am I selling my soul? Wow. That's incredible. And then when did the build stock, like when was this, like the time frame you, you said, this is it? It was 2019, basically, when she started the analysis or the understanding that procurement was an issue and transparency. And when she was handling, you know, bids and deliveries and subcontractors or suppliers, that there's just, there's just a lack of efficiency in their ability to really handle adequate uh, procurement processes, adequate budgeting, and that things that were procured at a certain period of time uncertain pricing just never really aligned with that. And so, I, you know, for Catherine, it was more in the, not in the dynamic of like, let me, I should build a SaaS company. It was in her real-time experience of, of handling procurement, of seeing deliveries, of being a part of the decision-making of signing off on purchasing orders and seeing discrepancies in pricing and budgeting, where she started questioning why certain things were done in a certain way, which is obviously you know, you learn a craft and then you start realizing it could be done more efficiently. And then you start asking why people are not doing it in a better way. And in some cases, better implies technology. In some cases, better management, better operations. But Catherine came up with the thesis ultimately that there should be a transparency of database around suppliers to know what's available in the market so that decisions can be made more efficiently. And then pricing and lead times can be managed, you know, better, which then impacts, you know, cash flows and, and then on-site labor. And so when she and I met, she had entered this incubator in 2021, but she got into this little incubator, which she actually paid for it, which is interesting, but she was basically learning the craft of building a business model, learning the craft of how do you think about building a company or what is it that you know, a company requires, or you know, how do you go about assessing whether or not you have a product for the market? And in that environment, you know, she came up with this model and she went out there and she had a lot of access and she, she went and did a hundred different surveys with developers and subcontractors and suppliers and asked the questions. And I think that's one of the really important dynamics of entrepreneurship is, are you solving the right problem for the right people? Did you ask your customers what they needed? Do you have a solution that they will adopt? And one of the things that got me to sign on was that she had access to the customers. And so even I had some obviously knowledge of, of you know, uh, financing and construction yeah. sites and doing the recs. And obviously I understood technologies. I could read up on these things and prop tech, contact. But what really made the difference for me is the time that I spent with her and the environment of, you know, construction workers on construction sites with the developers and suppliers. Now, obviously I had a blue collar background. So even though I was the last person they want to see as a techie in the Valley, Catherine had a, just a, a natural disposition to be interacting with them, to build that report, to have that trust, to get them to answer questions, to get them to share information. Because she came in with respect, she came in with understanding of the materials, she came in with understanding of their jobs. And that gave us an accelerated process that most of the other venture-backed companies in the Valley who are building software in the basement really didn't have transparency to. And that's where I gave my confidence, which was not only is there a $1.4 trillion industry around construction materials, that's about 4 or 5% of the entire GDP, it's second really to actual real estate development, which is the largest part of the GDP. But she actually had really astute ability to gain insights through directly interacting with our customers. And thus, as we spend that time, I gain a lot of trust and a lot of respect for her 
but a lot of trust in the ability that we could come about solving something significantly valuable that would warrant me coming out of retirement. Also, that would make it possible to really significantly impact that industry at scale. And so Catherine's magic sauce, if you will, that, that kind of like just it, cultural, technical, the hands-on experience, the ability to just get with the right people, like the hustle behind that is significant. And that allowed for me to start understanding on a business standpoint, a technology standpoint, where the opportunities were. And so we went from like, well, we should have you know, a database to that, well, we should really have a marketplace to, well, we really need fintech because cash flows are a huge issue. And these pieces came together gradually. And I think it's fundamental to really how anything comes about, which is you have an original thesis and then you apply yourself to the market and to your customers. You learn very quickly. You create some functional use case and dynamics of learning for yourself. And then you start building value that the customers want to engage and pay for to use that then gives you more learnings. And one of the things that you know came about, not from my Enron experience, because obviously corporation, lots of resources, big IPO. Mostly after that, when I helped launch professional gaming, when I got into World of Warcraft environment and built one of the largest communities there, it's the sequencing effect of what does it take to really create a product? What does it take to go to market? What does it take to build cash flow? What does it take to raise money? And there's a sequencing effect. It's the same. What does it take to run an ultra marathon? Like, what does it take to be one of the fastest climbers in the world? Like, you don't just start, you know, big. You don't just like, I'm going to climb Everest tomorrow. No, there's a sequencing effect of planning, of diligence, of learning, of building confidence of trying, you know, and educating yourself and growing your skills. And fundamentally, everybody starts with nothing. And there's just no way around that. Like you, we all start with nothing and we all have to gradually build something through a process and gain, you know, the inches and build the stack. And Catherine brought something very unique to the table. And I have been a co-founder, obviously at seven other companies with foreign founders aged from 50 all the way to down to 18 years old, you know, German, French, Armenian, you know, I've been in obviously multiple gaming industry verticals. I've been in software. I've reached, you know, a billion and a half consumers at that point. I've been venture backed by a lot of people. But what I had developed through that 80% success rate that far outpaces anybody else in the industry, like in startups and in venture backed companies and outcomes, was the process, was the requirements, was getting on base at different stages of the business, right? Having learned all the craft of running all these departments. But what I saw that was most unique and important was the ability to gain confidence. And the fact that Catherine had expertise and access, right? That could differentiate the way we could build a product faster with my knowledge of how we could build a company and get access to resources or capital and be capital efficient. And, you know, think about how we stage our releases and learn how we use our capital and who we hire at what time. And that has been the magic sauce that, that basically, we, you know, after coming together in 2022, we started building the marketplace, starting going to suppliers getting them to create transparency of their data, trying to capture that data into a database environment, create algorithms to create basically an Amazon, if you will, for some you know, buyers to come and have real-time data to buy materials and procure. But in a window of six to eight months, we started really foundationally creating that infrastructure and that technological architecture, while we also had to go to supplier and convince them to do something they've never done before, which is to create transparency around pricing, around lead times, around volume, that's not public information. And in the same time, we're like, okay, well, who is our, who's, who's our market? Who are our buyers? Where are we creating the most value? I mean, all the very fundamental aspects of really building a company, but the differentiation for the speed at which we've done that was the access to customers and the understanding of the product. 
So in the dynamic of why are companies so differentiated is that Catherine learned that in the high-rise environment, certain materials are commoditized. And thus, certain individuals within the stack of the, you know, the people needed to build a building, some people are not that as valuable as they may appear. And the cost of the markups of those individuals in this, you know, these parts of the business are not as worthy of those markups as they may appear. And so the unique economics around efficiency and transparency and real-time access and data starts kind of showing itself. And then you lean into the, well, what's the biggest problem around the fact that people are struggling to get their materials or struggling to, to pay or cash flow? Cash flow becomes the biggest hindrance to successful development and on-time development. And so you realize very quickly that, hey, you go to a supplier, you're like, what would it take or what do you need or what's the problem? And they're like, we don't get paid. We don't get paid. We take all the risks, we handle logistics, we have a warehouse, we, and then we issue credit lines, we don't get paid. So you're like, well, that, that's a problem. And, like, and you know, so you're like, well, if you got paid, what would it do? How would it change your business? Right? And then it's like the buyer's are like, well, we have to go through development, we go to an architectural firm, we go through an outsource blueprint company, you know, that does mark, you know, that does takeoff, that then we go to a GC that does go to subcontractors. Like there's so many people with their hands in the pocket. There's so many markups. There's and everybody's controlling the information. And you're like, well, what, what would it do for you to have real-time access? So like, how much time would it save you? How much money could it save you? And again, the, the secret sauce for us relative to Silicon Valley approach was we're in New York City, the largest real estate market, one of the largest in the world, largest in America. And we found a, a unique approach to the fact that our founder, Catherine, has significant access, understands the culture, understands the materials, understands the margins of those materials and how the process of warehousing, distribution, logistics, on-site, union, like we have a real unique understanding of what the friction points are going to be and assessing those and inquiring about them. And so it, it makes a big difference in the amount of capital that you need and who you're hiring, right? Or how much problems you can solve without throwing a lot of money at the problem by solving the more important problems faster. And that's, you know, like we went live 45 days ago. We've had over, I mean, we've had over a million dollars and procurement bids in just 30 days. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for that detailed explanation, Wilson. Actually, you were gonna, you answered my question. I was gonna ask like how the parallels of what you've done before, mobile and gaming and finance, and then what you've gone into with this you know, construction and procurement and tech parallels, uh, you, you answered it there. What I'm really intrigued about is, you know, as a startup, there is like a lot of problems you wanna solve all at once, but in reality, Similar to what you mentioned, there's like this, you know, sequencing effect. So maybe, you know, maybe if you want to backtrack on like, what is the core problem, Catherine, you started with? And then when Wilson came, like, what is kind of the, the sequencing you guys are working on that is like kind of into fruition? Because it sounds like it's both the platform level becoming the one-stop shop for materials and procurement, as you mentioned, like an Amazon for the, those suppliers. There's also the finance side to support people and then distribution is probably another. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, this is really fascinating, actually, to hear okay. that, that perspective on how, where did you start? What was the core? And then where are you leading to? And what's next? Sure. And I think from on-site construction experience is the lack of access and transparency to whether it's the pricing, whether it's the materials. Statistically, it's, 70% of projects come in over time, 80% come in over budget. So that's a big part of it. How can we create 
the most cost savings while also expediting to make sure that these projects are coming in without delays. And of course, during the time that we were starting it, we had a global supply chain breakdown during COVID. So I, that's to name a few, but I think Wilson can also talk more about how we've grown and yeah. pivoted a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, basically Bill Stock is a marketplace for construction materials focused in the Tri-State area at this given point in time. It's just such an enormous market. Over the next four years alone, it's $400 billion of capital expenditures around public and private. We're also happened because of Catherine and how we set up the company to be, you know, a one minority owned business. In the context of New York State, New York City, there's basically a required allocation to those businesses of up to 20% of all expenditures around construction and development, which could be transportation, it could be parks and recreation, it could be lower income housing to women minority owned businesses. So you put that in the context of, you know, different bills and the amount of capital expenditures for New York City and the area, it's fairly enormous. It's actually $200 billion between New York and New Jersey just in the next three or four years. So, you know, there, it was just, you know, again, people want to reach for the moon. People want to, you know, go after every market. Early on in our pre-seed, people were like, well, how are you going to expand? I'm like, expand from what? Like New York City alone in the commercial residential environment is a $100 billion market a year. Like if we just succeed in New York, I'm a billion dollar company. But the, the reality is Silicon Valley loves SaaS. They love software. That was the biggest friction point because what we understood is this. We need to create value on a unit economic standpoint, not on a software standpoint. People in the construction industry don't want to buy software. They're worried about cash flow. They're worried about unit economics, right? They're worried about timelines. So the way to address that was, well, can we create efficiencies in discovery? Can we create efficiency in price saving? And can we create efficiency in lead times? If you can address those things on the buyer side, that is enormous. Now on the supplier side, because we're two-sided, what is it that they care most about? More business, right? Because if they always rely on their subcontractors, like they're very limited to a certain profile of, of potential, you know, uh, bids, if you will, or potential orders, and they want to get paid. And that's where the magic came in, which is, well, if we reduce the number of participants in the middle of the stack, we create those efficiencies for the marketplace, and then we support that through basically financial services, fintech, either through financing procurement or factoring the purchasing order, meaning paying the purchasing order early. In the New York Tri-State area, you know, suppliers are basically issuing credit. They're, they're basically saying, we will give you materials in advance and you will pay us net 30, net 60, net 90. Obviously, in an environment where liquidity is a constant revolving line of credit, delays happen, suppliers are the ones bearing the burden. And so they're always out a lot of money on a lot of projects, which is very expensive because that impacts, you know, manufacturing, warehousing, and ongoing cash flow. And the impacts, you know, it requires higher insurances, higher liabilities, like, there's just an enormous economic dynamic around cash flows for supplier manufacturers. So yeah. we figured, well, if we can do factoring and get those guys paid net five instead of net 60 or net 90 or having to go to court or never getting paid in full, what's the value of that to them on a unique economic standpoint? Like, what is it that they'll bring back to the market in terms of pricing difference? Suddenly, they're incentivized to deliver on time to get the best lead possible, to give you the best pricing possible. Because you're going to pay them net five of a delivery, right, post any discrepancy. The value of that cash far exceeds anything that they could come up with. And that's how we kind of create an environment where the suppliers are incentivized, the buyers are incentivized, and we bring this through, you know, technology. But we're not selling technology. What we're selling is basically up to 40% savings on materials, up to five times faster lead times on material deliveries. 
right? Improved unit economic and cash flows on the supplier side, lowered risk capital, right? Like that's like magic to them. Like you don't even have to say anything else. They don't, they, they don't care about the rest. They don't care if it's a marketplace, if it's software, if you want their data, they don't care. They're like, just tell me what I need to do because it's solving their biggest problem. So again, you don't get to that if you don't have access, if you're not talking to the right people, if you're not asking the right questions. Ask that. Like, I mean, it seems like you obviously, you know, you, you, this is an incredible amount of like problems to combine together and solve, right? And it seems like you obviously both have that access and capability to do so. But um, do you have like a team you're building that, you know, specializes on the supply, the buyer, the finance, while you guys focus on kind of maybe the platform? Or am I saying this incorrectly? Like, uh, I am I'm curious, like, how are you going to build out the team and the model for scale? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think the interesting dynamic here is that from the get-go is, that, okay, we need a construction culture and a construction skill set. You need to understand materials. You need to understand specs. You need to understand how materials are delivered. You need to know where they're delivered. Like, there's just an intellectual capital around understanding your customer that you're not going to get from Silicon Valley or a great engineer from Facebook. But then you do need to build a marketplace efficiently, right? You do need to build algorithms. You do need to use AI. You do need to create recommendation engines and efficient databases and capturing because, like, you know, a material has a wide range of SKUs, right? So like you're dealing with thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of data points that are being captured, managed, updated, right? So it was very clear to me and early on that, you know, that that duality was essential, that we cannot just be a software company. We cannot just be a tech company. And we both, Casper and I, had to put ourselves out there into these conversations. Now, the brilliance of our relationship and partnership in this company is Catherine goes to suppliers. Catherine goes to the buyers. I handle hiring or tech, or I handle our partnerships in fintech, or because I have my access level, right? After 25 years, like there's very few people I can access from venture capital to CEOs of fintech companies. Like in one email, I'm going to get a response. And Catherine, you know, knows enough people to be able to ask questions or to be able to get those meetings or to get to, you know, fairly large suppliers or developers. You know, once we had a good enough product to speak of, then we start, you know, going to CEOs and suppliers, right? And those individuals, you know, they've been in there for seven years. If you think about the manufacturing supply industry, they're basically post-World War II, right? They're baby boomers. They're the ones who build the infrastructure of America. So a lot mm-hmm. of these companies on the supply side, manufacturing side, are owned by 60, 70-year-old guys, right? It's, it's a real boys club, like, and their kids work there and their kids work there and it's generational and they probably work there when their dad worked there. Like, there's this great a partner of ours who's part of a fairly large holding company and he, he started working at the supplier he's at, at the same office and warehouse he's at when he was 12 years old and his father owned it and his father owned it, right? And so, like, these guys, they yeah. live they, they live and breathe that. Like, if a Silicon Valley or venture capital person shows up to that environment, they'll never talk to you. Like, and that was kind of the magic sauce that we, Catherine and I, immediately kind of recognized. At first, I was like, oh, Catherine, you need to learn venture. You need to come to these cocktails with me. You need to learn how to talk fintech. What And then... You know, that was very hard transition for Catherine. And really quickly, even though I had enough experience in, fin- you know, in construction and obviously I'm slightly older and so I carry a little bit of present in what is, is a man's world, like it was very clear actually that Catherine needed to stay Catherine. Catherine needed to stay the DNA of the construction industry because there is no getting in through me. There's just really the ability to retain that intellectual capital and expend it. So we have basically 13 people right now in the company. And we have, you know, a handful of engineers. We have Catherine, who really kind of leads the sales effort, the customer effort, the product definition around the customers. 
We have a product lead, an engineering lead, and I, I run everything on a day-to-day basis. But we've broken up the, okay, Catherine's expertise applies to how our customers buy, what they want, how we build a product around that, right? And ultimately, like, well, you need to run an engineering team, you need to run a product team, you need to run roadmaps and planning, right? And prioritization, like, you need to go raise money, you need to hire people, like, that's that's my craft, right? We need a fintech partner. Those are all my craft, right? And Catherine's obviously intellectual capital, you know, is you can't, you know, you can't solve for that if it's not there because you, you, it's very, it would be very hard to hire for that. Uh, but what we hire is basically account managers, account reps, or, you know, success managers who come with material experience background or who come with developer backgrounds or who may, who may have been a general contractor or who are currently, you know, repping materials, right? Because what we need is not just a relationship. We need people who understand the culture, who understand the materials, who understand the way the business works, because those guys are going to go to suppliers and developers and continue building the, the, the pipeline. But to be candid, we have a pipeline where we have 20 committed buyers that have about $500 million of budget. And we have about, I don't know, Amazing. 50, 60 leads behind that that are worth about 2 or $3 billion in materials budget. So like, yeah, I mean, we started literally selling 45 days ago. We got our first purchasing order 15 days later, thanks to Catherine. One month after that, we had over, close over a million already, you know, and had over a million dollars of per, uh, procurement orders come through through the process of relationship building. And it's like a lot of companies, right? And, and you know, you got to go out there. You have a platform, but ultimately you got to go drive those deals. You got to create that trust. You got to create the messaging. That's Catherine. You know, you can't override that. You know, if you just send a URL to somebody who barely uses an email, like these guys are not on LinkedIn. They're nowhere to be found, <laughs> right? Yeah. They're barely on DNB, right? They're barely on the country. Like, so, you know, just today, she met somebody yesterday. We got a six-figure procurement requirement today on the phone, text, no email, <laughs> nothing, right? And then we got to bring that back on the marketplace, right? We got to bring that back into the environment of the marketplace. So, but what we learned also is like, these guys don't know how to use software. Like we literally have handholded our customers, both in uploading all the data, capturing all their data. And basically it's like hang glove to create the trust. But the, the customers that we have now have been repeat customers. We have 100% retention. And some of these customers have LTVs of, of hundreds of millions of dollars a year in procurement orders. So it's a fairly interesting thing. Like the first order we got, thanks to Catherine, was a $10,000 procurement order. Not significant. But we saved the person $100,000 between cost of materials, between lead time, cost of labor on site, and the release of the credit line. That customer has come back three times now in a month. It's incredible. So that's really, you know, it's an environment where technology isn't the leading value proposition. Cash flow is, you know, speed is, accuracy is, reliability is, trust is. Right. The data, the AI, all these things are going to be amplifiers. Like how do we grow our revenues? How do we expand our product offering? How do we move into a Trojan horse where we have, you know, marketplace that captures data with fintechs that creates a moat environment and data that goes into SaaS, right? But fundamentally, it's like, do people trust us? Well, the only way they're going to trust us is not through a URL. It's because Catherine goes on construction sites and she talks to the general contractors. Well, that's... What you were just mentioning about like efficiency, speed, relationships, com- you know, communication, execution, and obviously the network effect and not only tech with all the in- other industries just reminds me of like New York City, <laughs> the embodiment of New York City. Uh, so I guess with like, the, it's inc- I can't believe how the time has flown by, just the story uh, hearing about, you know, both of you and Bill Stock. Uh, there's a f- few things I definitely wanted to just kind of ask is 
I do believe in this, you know, people are talking about, oh, balance, this and that. I believe in optimization, right? And I feel like I know Wilson, I know you, obviously, you have, you have a couple of kids, you've known each other for a while. You definitely maximize optimization. I'd love to hear about that. I also would love to hear about your perspective, Catherine, and how you do it, uh, you know, running this company, the relationships you have, you know, mm-hmm. just optimizing life in New York City. Uh, it would be great to hear about that. Sure. Uh, one I'm learning a lot from Wilson. He's obviously the veteran and he's definitely part of the secret sauce. He's confident, smart. He's got all these years behind him. He's, you know, the best operator I think that exists in the world. And he really leads our team to greatness as well. One of the things that he is very strict about is our 70-30 and making sure that, you know, I'm running sales at least 70% of the time. And then anything else, product, uh, legal, finance, anything else is at 30% of the time. And being really rigid about the structure of our calendars is really important, whether that's in work, whether that's outside of work. And it's also our energy and what we spend our energy on, who we're around. And building a startup, and I think a lot of people would understand this, is you kind of have to silo yourself a bit. You know, it's early mornings, it's late nights. You don't have as much energy to be able to put out to your friends or to your family. And being really rigid about scheduling that time if you want to have that outlet. And I, I find that we're hugely successful in the structure that Wilson has really guided us to. I want to adjust the terminology because <laughs> when Catherine met me, she's like, dude, you're such a stiff. And I was like, it's called discipline. Discipline. And she just used the term rigid. And I'm like, no, it's called discipline. <laughs> well, I also, look, my father was a uh, big time in time management. And so like when people say, man, you are, you're obsessed about this and that. And, and I don't even have, I don't even have watch sometimes I wear. And I'm like, I know kind of like, I'm all about the time management. That's the thing. It's like optimizing the time is so precious that we don't real. I mean, people don't realize it. Yeah. I'm curious, like, how do you, you know, optimize that. So to Catherine's point, like one of the things that I had to learn the hard way, right? I mean, again, I've got 20 plus years is, and it's not just one thing, right? I learned this in sports. I learned this through a lot of therapy. I learned this with other entrepreneurs. I learned this obviously across seven startups is you have to have disciplines. You have to have habits. You have to remove variables that are emotional distractions or undermine your energy or not supportive of the goals that you put on yourself. And you have to Create that accountability because nobody's going to do that for you. And it doesn't make it easy to share that or to, to teach that or to bring that to the culture. But one of the things that I press on with the team is, okay, the calendar is blank. So when you fill the calendar so that you can control versus being reactive so that you can apply yourself with the most valuable amount of energy into the most valuable outputs and problem solving and you know priorities, start with a blank calendar. Don't start with a reactive calendar of I've got a million meetings to go to or I've got a million calls to get to. No. What is your 70-30 or what is your 80-20? Like in in times of getting on base, like as I call it, like we're always trying to get on base, right? You're always trying to get on the next base. It's You're not hitting home runs. You're executing for moving the ball forward in ways that allow you to learn faster than you fail. So it comes down to like, what are you, how are you using your time to achieve that? Everybody's got their own skills. Right. And so as we got further along the product and the product kind of material itself, I went to the team like, okay, now we have a certain window of time to start delivering, you know, measurable outputs and KPIs against that. What's most valuable for us to go fundraising? 
you can't deny the dynamics of the requirements that you have to have to go fundraising. I don't care how you want to raise your business, you know, build your business. The investors are going to look for certain things. So you have to be able to have self-awareness that whatever it is that you want to do, there's things that are required of you. Um, and so, you know, you, you share that, you create, you know, that communication, you take the time to communicate why it is that, you know, I, at seven in the morning, I send out a text, hey, these are our priorities today. And then I also include a little mindset blurb where I include a little pep talk. Um, and I do that consistently. I never miss out on that. I never miss out on the habits. Right? And I have my own. Now I got two kids. I'm you know, a fairly extreme athlete. I'll see an entrepreneur, a coach. Like, you know, I, I mentor a lot of people. It comes down to my ability to manage my time based on my priorities. So, for example, when I was in my parental relationship uh, and I still had a lot of things going on in my life, I had a 60-40 rule. 60% of my life is my family and my kids. 40% is everything else. It was never 50-50. It's not about balance. It's about prioritization of the things that take a certain amount of energy and commitment that you value. So you can either be reactive to life and everything around you and that defines your value, or you can define your value, prioritize your value, right? And then you're never really losing. And, and whatever it takes and whatever it costs and whatever it, it's going to require of you, it's never too much. It's just what it takes. And so yeah. I think what was fairly unique with Catherine and the team is, for example, I said, okay, Catherine is really great in the morning. The guys are there in the construction site in the morning, 7 a.m. to like 1 o'clock. Like we, we tried to not bother her. She's out there. She's doing her thing. Then she's got some, you know, meetings at the office with me or the, the employees of the team. And then we have some admin stuff, you know. But I tell my employees, I'm like, go to therapy. Go to work out. Go to the gym. Make sure that you see your friend, you know, every week. Make sure that, you know, you're, you have intimacy. Like I don't require my employees or anybody to give up everything. I just require them to understand that for a window of time, you have to be able to commit to something at a higher velocity, remove distractions, right? That really don't support your achievements and your goals um, and organize yeah. that in a way where you never feel like you're reactive or that you're missing out. Now, it doesn't sound sexy and as fun as just being like, but realistically, it also allows you to emotionally compartmentalize and to actually be more present with what it is that you give yourself the ability to have. And to be better at planning for it, to be more present when you're in there because yeah. you're not reactive. So you have better transition windows. So, you know, I, we, Catherine and I have gone, you know, as individuals in our lives with therapy and we've had to work through a lot of different things. Um, I've coached dozens and dozens of people in, in my life. And uh, I, I, yes, I push on the discipline of the commitments tied to what are the most valuable um you know, problems to solve or outputs to have or what people prioritize as the most, as the most important things to being joyful and happy in their life. Like you, you don't have to, you know, one of the things that I learned, if you look at Elon Musk or people like my father, you know, they give up everything to be number one. Like the distortion of commitment between number 10, at, which puts you in the 1% versus the number one is basically everything. Like, not like, well, yeah, it's 10% more. No, it's everything. It's your family. Yeah. It's your health, right? It's everything, right? It's, it's time with your kids to see them grow up. Like, no, to be number one, it's everything. And that's mostly ego. And so for me, and when I work with my teams and I, I support Catherine or, you know, I want to enable the teams to grow, I don't require an everything mentality. I require the discipline that it takes for what we're trying to achieve. And if that's not what they want to achieve, then they're in the wrong place. I don't require them to be somebody they're not. 
But I make sure that there's a lot of communication transparency around, you know, the discipline and the prioritization and how we formulate and calculate what outcomes are and how we achieve them, right? And then suddenly that rationality and that proportionality doesn't seem outrageous. Isn't that difficult to manage? Gives you a lot of outcomes. Like, you know, when uh, Catherine was CEO for all last year, I became CEO several months ago. But what it did when we did that, it allowed us to rebalance the energy of the company and her yield and output around really mission critical areas of the business that tie into our fundraising, like just blew through the roof, right? Whereas wow. before she was doing a lot of things that were just not as productive because she just wasn't as good at them because she hadn't learned them before. And so diluting our skill sets to trying to manage for everything and do everything really actually was making her less productive, less successful, less happy, less energized. And thus a lower output for the company and thus more work for me or whatever that was. So it was, it's recognizing the patterns um, and then enabling our, our employees to feel excited about the focus while not having them give up on everything for it, but recognizing that, you know, you need to, the balance isn't real. What the balance is, is the, the organization of your schedule and your time and the commitment up to that. That's really the only balance you have. But I, yes. I do not believe in giving up everything. Listen, I, I've built a lot of successful companies with a lot of great founders, made a lot of money. I've achieved some pretty amazing things in climbing after just two years of being in the industry when I've never climbed before. Became one of the greatest elite athletes in the world in climbing, speed climbing. It's just discipline. It's just a commitment. But I have been with my kids every day. The reason why I speed climb is so I don't give up my kids. So I bring them to school every day. So somebody who takes 21 days to climb Denali or 50 days to climb Everest, I will take five days to climb Denali. And I will train for that when they're sleeping, when they're at school. And I will coach on the side. And I will run the company with Catherine. Right? There's 24 hours in the day. The question is, what is it that you prioritize? How do you value it? And how do you not waste time? If you reverse engineer to a goal, and my goal is to, you know, in two years, become one of the greatest you know, climbers of all time. I reverse engineer. What is it going to take? Who do I need to meet? What do I need to learn? Who do you, who, what's it going to cost? Right? And then I made the commitment to it. But not at the expense of my kids or not at the expense of working with Catherine or not at the expense of nonprofit work. Right? As a part of like, what can I achieve in a window of time? If I solve the formula of what it requires, then I can commit to that. But once you're committed, you're all in, right? And so like speed climbing, you know, some of the largest, you know, biggest mountains in the world and 133 summits in two and a half years, like it's not about the ego. It's, that's the commitment that I made to my family. I don't mm. negotiate that. But I also, want to achieve, I also want to achieve amazing things. I also made a commitment to my investors. So you just have to accept the commitment and then you have to live up to that or don't make the commitment. Yeah, I love it. And thanks for sharing kind of the, all that. I mean, it's Im impressive kind of what you've done. And uh, I think I hope people who are listening in really, you know, understand kind of the commitment factor, discipline, um, you know, it's different than just like kind of the balance act as, as, as a lot of people are talking about. One, uh, one last thing, which I'm really excited about is everybody talking about the future, right? I am curious to see both your perspectives on where do you see the future and where do you see Bill Stock in, in that future? You know, like with like you were talking about earlier about AI and algorithms and things, everybody's talking about that. Robotics is another one. You know, there's it, those are all kind of very interesting things. Uh, the future of like cities. Uh, I mean, I guess this could be a future, another podcast in its own uh, because uh, I'm assuming that's a whole discussion about architecture and the future of cities. But look, yeah, just like what what is your thoughts on uh, you know the future? Uh, and again, where does build stock kind of fit in there? Be 
great to hear. So I, I have very high aspirations, of course. I'm like, oh, I hope that all construction projects can finish on budget and on time by use of stock. And uh, we can, during COVID, there was a housing crisis meeting between a lot of the heads of federal, state, and they were saying how we had underbuilt over 400,000 affordable housing units. Like that's the type of impact that I really want to see in the future, especially like Wilson said, we are a women minority owned business. That's what we're working towards. And they have to allocate 20%, 15 to 20% of their budgets to women minority art, um, businesses. So I hope that we have a really big impact in, in that space of being able to really help people and be able to create these efficiencies. And um, I know Wilson can talk more about how, you know, the AI and the Trojan horse and how we're building to be kind of an all encompassing. Yes. We're starting with building a marketplace and then FinTech and then SaaS and really create this Trojan horse of a company and what that can mean for the future of build stock and the future of New York and, our other expansion. Yeah, I, I think one of the areas actually that Catherine's immensely passionate about is, you know, uh, construction materials are actually one of the biggest polluters in the world. The making of materials and the usage of those materials have the highest pollution output of anything in the world. Um, so there's actually a really unique dynamic around um, the migration through code zoning laws, you know, of regulation, state, government level around uh, altering and changing the materials that you have to use, refurbishing buildings, um, building, you know, material with using zero emission materials. Um, the actual largest uh, emission reduction initiative the government has, which is like 10x anything else, is around construction materials. It's, it's enormous. It is 10x any other government related, whether it's solar for, for energy, whether it's, you know, uh, electrical cars, like 10x that is energy efficient, zero emission related construction materials uh, in the government um, requirements. So uh, we actually have some very high uh, profile advisors from very large architectural firms that give us preview and insights into what those regulations and laws and requirements are around materials moving forward. Uh, and we think there's going to be an enormous opportunity to have a really significant um, you know, impact around that uh, in particular, as a marketplace, right? And as, you know, driving that awareness and driving uh, those materials into the market because we'll have all the suppliers and all the developers. Uh, and when those regulations come to play, they will be required to buy these things. And, and we feel like we have a huge opportunities by consolidating the market uh, and, and, you know, the, the supply and demand to be at the forefront of impacting uh, a, a significant part of the ecosystem, you know, on a huge, you know, urban environment standpoint. Uh, one of the biggest trends in New York right now uh, is either conversions of commercial into a residential because of the drop off in all the WeWorks of the world and, you know, during uh, COVID. And the second is refurbishing, uh, you know, pivoting all these buildings to be more efficient uh, and, and, uh, and emission efficient. And, uh, and that's a big thing. And, and Catherine's very sensitive and cares deeply about that and has had a long uh, engagement and involvement through AIA and other uh, associations in, in the industry to that. And even though in the short term, you know, it's a simple supply and demand, right? Like if there's just not enough supply and demand, like there's no point in being in the game. Um, but the ability to have the biggest developers and the biggest buyers on our marketplace 
will create that liquidity very quickly for us when they're obligated to allocate a certain percentage of dollars or development or, or you know alterations to buildings to buying those. And we'll have an enormous marketplace to make that happen on. Um, so that's one really big aspect that, that has nothing to do with actually software or AI for build stock, but it has to do with market conditions that are going to be very important, um, you know, to our cities and how people live and, and you know, uh, zero emission and uh, reduction uh, in pollution. But construction materials, 10x, you know, the impact to pollution than other ones. And so that's it's just a huge opportunity when it comes to software and AI, you know, as you know, I mean, look, I, I, were, I was almost hired at Second Life in 2005, right? Virtual reality, right? Like, it's taken 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> VR, AR, virtual worlds. Like, come on. Like, yeah. I, I helped launch professional gaming in America, right, with the MLG guys in 2002, 2003. It took 15 years for professional gaming to become a multi-billion dollar industry. It looks I mean, like Metaverse, same thing. It's like taking like 10 plus like, years, yeah. 20 years, right? So I understand, well, yeah. Yeah, so when I think about construction, think about the fact that it's a, it's a 100-year-old industry that's been led by the same people for a very long period of time, right? 60, 70 years now in terms of materials and supply and warehouses. And it's still a very rudimentary – it's a very Warren Buffett company, right? It's a very Warren Buffett business environment, right? Like he, he looks at raw materials. He looks at basic, you know, uh, economics and, you know, human behaviors of what everybody needs to live every day. And people need homes. People need – you know, buildings to live in, you know, and those materials need to be bought and that's never going to end. Um, so with AI and, and software, it, it's about amplifying, right? These things are not as standalone, anything of value. They don't actually solve the problem. So we don't look at AI as like, oh, that's its own thing at our company. No. How does AI help create a better recommendation engine when we convert a blueprint into a takeoff, right? Well, how does AI help us convert a blueprint into a takeoff that then matches into our database? right? For real-time recommendations, of the right materials, the right rights, the right lead time. Now you've removed like three different companies from the, from the market, right? How much, you, you know, how much economic efficiencies are you creating in time and value by using AI to solve another problem in the, in the value chain, right? Which is a takeoff from blueprints from an architectural firm to create accuracy in the materials that they're requiring to build a building, right? So we look at it as like, okay, how do we amplify a, a basic problem using technologies that will accelerate solutions that will improve unit economics that will make the process of you know discovery easier or of accuracy or you know in, in the industry there's thousands of materials right and there's um there's no um i always get the word confused catherine uh, there's no standardization between all these you materials so uh, basically, manufacturers create materials, you know, insulation, plywood, metal framing, silk, you know, like, and everybody's got their own naming, their own convention of, you know, defining a material. So then a subcontractor is the only person who's able to be like, oh, yeah, this is what this means. Then they'll tell that to the general contractor who tells it to somebody else. It's like that telephone game, right? There's no standardization. So you're dealing with like thousands of materials that have variances of SKUs that can include tens of thousands of actual differentiated products. There's no standardization. They're building buildings or houses. Again, what we found is high rise is not about just the budget. It's about the the skews get smaller because of code zoning, you know, obviously strength of material and fire resistance and all these other things. So now fewer materials get purchased a lot over and over and over again. Right? It's not rocket science. If you can standardize those, they become commoditized. They're easier to buy. 
you know, you, you match the brand, the quality, like, so that's where technology plays in for us. Like, it, it's just really like, how do we make something that was fairly archaic and, and lacked uh, a lot of, uh, that was overly uh, redundant or, uh, you know, dependent on human intellect? How do you standardize a process where there's trust in that? Uh, and the biggest thing in our industry in construction is trust. And there's a dependency and a reliability on humans for that. It hasn't proven to work out very well, but nothing has come about to make it so that they were willing to pivot. And we're seeing the pivot now with Billstock and the customers that we have, but it will take time. And if we throw too many flashy things at it too fast, what happens? We make mistakes or it doesn't work or it doesn't add as much value, creates ambiguity. Like what happens to all the market, you know, the, the, the social networks when they go, oh, I'm a social network. No, now I'm a gaming platform. Oh no, I'm a commerce platform. And they fail because fundamentally the consumer doesn't want to adopt everything or can adopt everything at such a fast rate or sees the value at that rate. So, you know, there's a lot of value for us to create in very basic ways that have a significant yield factor. And I'm a very yield driven person, which is like, you know, what is it that we're solving that creates what output, um, you know, and outcomes are everything. And so it's like time, money, energy, what's the yield of these things, right? Like if we throw software at a problem that, increases a minute of percentages upside but doesn't really have a big impact on our customer like that customer doesn't care and then we just threw away vc money at a problem that doesn't matter so yeah you know we were catherine keeps us honest around that because she's constantly talking to the customer i make sure the engineers don't know their head cut off you know throwing around ai opportunities and software opportunities that really aren't that important in the short term uh, and then we have a long-term picture of like how these things come together to amplify the marketplace, to amplify the fintech, you know, how does AI and then software accelerate unit economics for our customer or, or discovery speed time or removing other participant in the industry to create better accuracy or to save more money? Um, and then how do we enter new material markets that are going to be basically a default requirement by the government for all developers? Uh, and it goes back to like, you know, you're, ba- you're building a foundation. Like, okay, if you get the customers to see value, they'll come back. If you get enough customer transactions, you get, you know, data. If you get enough customers to see enough financial cash flow efficiency, there's no reason for them to go anywhere else, right? And if you start accruing that, right, then you have a huge big data play, right? Because now we know all the materials, we know the procurement behavior, we know the pricing in the market, right? We know their requirements, their lead times. Like now you have this enormous, you know, we have the documents, we have the blueprints, we have, you know, like now you, now you have this just enormous value dynamic of data. Uh, and that's, that's what you know kind of blows up the whole thing for us um and and you know that that's kind of what's been cool about it or how we see the future of it beyond just you know today that's pretty incredible i mean you know i hope everybody who's listening in really enjoyed kind of like the story behind it, uh both catherine deal and listen kriegel and i want to thank you both for being part of the Shaber show and sharing both your stories as well as what uh, you're leading up to with uh, Build Stocks. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to Shaber Show. Thank you. Thanks, it's great to be here. Yeah.